I want to read a quote to you this morning. A rogue does not laugh in the same way an honest man does. A hypocrite does not shed the tears of a man of good faith. All falsehood is a mask. And however well made the mask may be, with a little attention, we may always succeed in distinguishing it from the true face. Now that quote alone is significant. But you cannot understand the full significance of that quote unless you read it in the context of a larger story. And the larger story for that particular quote is a book written by Alexander Dumas called The Three Musketeers. If you want to understand the significance, the full significance of that quote, you need to understand that story. Well, today I'm going to tell you a story out of the book of Judges about our fifth judge. But it is a story that fits into a larger story. And my hope is that this morning you would understand the larger story so that you might grasp the full significance of the story in Judges. There's a man named Jacob. He's the grandson of Abraham. Many of you have probably heard about Abraham. Well, his grandson, Jacob, is living with his in-laws. He's living with his in-laws in servitude to his father-in-law. He's having to work in order to pay to gain the right to marry and have as his wives the daughters of his father-in-law Laban. Now I particularly like that arrangement, being a dad of a daughter. And she just so happens to be here today. How appropriate is that? But I can understand that Jacob grows um, in his impatience. And he doesn't want to be living in that scenario anymore. Laban, his father-in-law, has really not treated him fair. He's taken advantage of him. And the only reason that Jacob is made out okay in the setting is because God is actually for Jacob. God's hand is on Jacob. Now God comes to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I want you to go home to the land that I gave your dad. Because that's the land I'm going to give you. And so Jacob, he gathers up his family and he leaves Laban's household without Laban knowing. He takes off. Well, Laban hears about it a few days later. And so Laban packs up and he goes after Jacob to bring his family back. Before he encounters Jacob and catches up with Jacob, God comes to Laban and says to Laban, you better not mess with Jacob. My hand is on him. I want him to go back because this is my will. You better not mess with Jacob. And Laban pays attention to God. He comes to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I don't know why you did this. I've got a real problem with it. But God told me I better not mess with you. And so I'd like to make an agreement with you, a covenant. And they pile up a heap of stones. And they call that heap of stones two names, Galid and Mizpah. Galid means a heap of witness. And then Mizpah means watchtower. And they name this heap, this pillar, these two names. And then, they, and then Laban begins to say something to Jacob. And he says to Jacob, I want you to know that this heap of stones is a witness between us. So that when we're not with each other, 
God is watching. I won't be there to watch how you treat my, my daughters, but God will be. He'll be there. And I won't pass these stones coming to where you're going to do harm to you. And you better not pass these stones coming to where I am to do harm to me. And he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. He calls God as witness. And he says, God is judge. And what Laban has essentially said is, I understand the will of God. And I am not going to get in his way. But you better not get in his way either. And he's going to make sure we both understand what is right in his eyes. It just so happens that Mizpah becomes a city. And that city is Jephthah's hometown. The judge we're reading about today in Judges chapter 10 and 11. Now I want you to pay close attention as we work through the story and see the emphasis on Mizpah and what happened at Mizpah in history and how that larger story is meant to impact what we understand about this story. So let's open our Bibles, Judges chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 17. Now in verse 17, we are reminded about what's happening here in Israel. The sons of Ammon were summoned and they camped in Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered together, camped at Mizpah. So you have the sons of Ammon. Ammon has come against Israel. And if you remember last week, you talked about how the people of God turned back to the Lord and the Lord was ready to deliver his people. And now we're brought right back into the scene of the conflict between the Ammonites and the Israelites. And the Israelites are watching and looking at the Ammonites coming against them. The Israelites are asking a question. Who is going to lead us to deliverance? Who's going to take care of us? Who's God going to use? And then just like you would see in a movie or a TV show, there's this flashback that is going to answer the question, who's going to lead us? And so we get this flashback into this man's life by the name of Jephthah. Read with me verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. Okay, what does that say to us? This great warrior that also has a significant problem. He's not who we would expect God to use to deliver us. In fact, it goes on to talk about how Jephthah is kicked out of his home by his brothers and he becomes an outcast. He can't even go home and he's leading a group of outcasts. I mean, he's, he's not the kind of deliverer we would expect God to use. And yet God has a plan. Then we come right back to the moment in time when we see the conflict. And the, and the people of God are asking the question, who are we going to go get? The fight is coming against us. And they say, hey, that guy Jephthah, he is one bad dude. And I think if we go get him, we can convince him to come home and he can take care of this problem. They begin to reason why they need to go get Jephthah and they go to get him. And I want you to notice here the conversation that happens between them in verse 7 of chapter 11. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, 
Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is the reason we've come, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them to me, Will I become your head, your chief? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. We will do as you have said. And Jephthah goes with the elders of Gilead, and the people make him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Did you hear the echo of the story of Mizpah? The Lord is witness. We're going to do just what you've said. We understand the will of God. We're not getting in the way of it. You better not get in the way of it. This is what God wants to do, and we're not going to change our mind. You hear that unfolding there? Jephthah goes back with them, and he's ready to get busy. And he doesn't waste any time at all. He sends a message to the king of Ammon and says to the king of Ammon, why are you fighting against us? And the king of Ammon sends a message back to Jephthah and says, I'll tell you why we're fighting against you because I want my land back. He says, back when Israel came out of Egypt, Israel took my land and I'm coming back to get it. And I would suggest that you give it to me peaceably because I'm coming to take it. Well, Jephthah gets that message, and he sees a real big problem in that message. It's not true. That's not what happened historically. And so Jephthah writes a detailed message of the history that actually happened and sent it right back to the king of Ammon. And he says to the king of Ammon, the land in dispute never belonged to the Ammonites. We all know what the history is. It belonged to a different people, and that people would not let Israel pass through. They came against Israel instead of allowing Israel to pass through their land, and God protected his people, and the result was those people lost their land, and it rightly belongs to the people of God because what God dispossesses, his people possess. You can imagine the king of Ammon didn't like that, didn't agree with that. Jephthah communicates this strong challenge to the king of Ammon. He says in verse 25, chapter 11, Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel? Did he ever fight against them? So when Jephthah sends this challenge back to the king of Ammon, he points to a particular story in history with a guy named King Balak, who is the king of the Moabites. Now, back in the time when Israel was coming out of Egypt, King Balak, the king of the Moabites, did not want Israel coming through that area. And so he was going to go after Israel to wipe them out. So he recruits a guy named Balaam. You remember the story Balaam's donkey? This is the story. Balak recruits Balaam to curse Israel because what Balak knew is the people that Balaam curses actually get defeated in battle. 
And so I'd like to hire Balaam to curse Israel so that I go into battle against Israel and win. And so Balak tries to hire Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam says to Balak, I can only curse whom God curses. And whom God blesses, I will bless. The only thing you're going to get out of me is what God wants. The only reason that what I do works is because I've figured out what God's will is. And then I just say that. Makes me look pretty good. Balak said, well, here's what I want you to say. I want you to say, cursed is Israel. And Balaam says, blessed is Israel. Well, Balak's not very happy about that. He wants something different. But Balaam keeps telling him, I don't have a choice. All I'm able to do is bless who God blesses and curse who God curses. Because God's will reigns supreme. Balaam's message to Balak is, you better get on board with God's will or it's not going to go okay for you. And Jephthah is calling to mind that story so the king of Ammon might be encouraged to do exactly what Balak did. Don't fight against the people of God. It's a losing battle. Now Look at the rest of this story here. Verse 26, while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Eor and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them in that time? Jephthah says to the king of Ammon, you've had 300 years to get this back and you haven't. I'll tell you why. Because God makes his will reign supreme. You can't fight against God. Verse 27, he says, therefore I, have, therefore I have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. Do you hear that echo again to Mizpah? Now you've got three stories that have come together communicating the same truth. You better pay attention to the will of God. Because you don't want to find yourself on the wrong side of God's will. Because it will not work out for you. Look at the most tragic piece of this story. Verse 28. The king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. He did not care about God's will. And it will not work out. The message is so emphasized in this story that you simply cannot miss it. Laban understood the will of God and made a decision not to go against the will of God. Balak understood the will of God and made a decision not to go against the will of God. The king of Ammon understood the will of God. And made a decision to go against the will of God. And it will not work out at all for him. 
God has given us this incredible emphasis here in this story, embedded in a larger story, so that we might understand as His people today that we need to be a people who agree with the Lord, who align our lives with His will, because any other decision simply will not work out. God's will is best and is right, reigns supreme, and we have an opportunity under His guidance to align our lives with His will will. There is no better way to live our lives. So what I want to do this morning is I want to point out to us as a church family two areas of God's will that affects every single person in this room. Number one comes out of 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. 2 Peter Chapter 3, verse 9. The scripture says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When I was a freshman in college, my first semester at school, I had made plans to go home at Thanksgiving. I'd gotten a plane ticket. It's a long way from College Station to Amarillo. And to go home just for a weekend, I felt like I needed a plane ticket, so I got a plane ticket to go home. And as I go to the airport, to, I'm excited about going home, seeing friends, seeing family, visiting my home church. I'm ready to be home. It's been a long beginning of a freshman year. You know, you get that kind of that freshman syndrome. You just want to go home for a couple days. And I was ready to go home. And I got to the airport and I went up to the counter. And I discovered at that moment that I was trying to check in that my flight had left 30 minutes before. It was terrible. But no matter what I did, I could not convince the plane to turn around. My best bet was to get on standby. And if you've ever been on standby around Thanksgiving in a small airport, let me just tell you, it's the definition of misery. It makes you reevaluate everything you should be thankful for. It was terrible. Did you know that the will of God in regard to salvation is far more stringent and exact than a plane ticket. God's will in regard to salvation is that people repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way to be saved there is no way, other way to receive eternal life. There is no other way to receive forgiveness of your sins. The only way that a person can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the will of God. There is no other option. There is no standby flight. There is no reissuing of tickets. There is only one plane leaving of salvation. And it's the plane of faith in Jesus Christ. That is the will of God and that's it. There is no other way to be saved. We've got to make a decision in this place in light of this moment 
that we will align our lives with the will of God. And the will of God is that we experience salvation through faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is our true deliverer. Jephthah was a deliverer of Israel, an outcast in his own right. But every one of the deliverers is pointing towards a better deliverer and his name is Jesus Christ. Jephthah was an outcast for a lot of reasons. But let me just tell you why Jesus Christ was an outcast. Jesus Christ was an outcast, despised and rejected because Jesus Christ became our sin. Jesus Christ was rejected as the perfect son of God because Jesus Christ assumed your sins and my sins in full, bore them to the cross where he died forsaken for our deliverance. But the only way that we can experience deliverance through Jesus Christ is by placing our faith in him. That is the will of God. You cannot fight against it. You cannot get around it. There is no other way to be saved except through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the will of God. You've got to make a decision today. Whether or not you will align your life with the will of God. A lot of people, they'll read the Bible, hear about the Bible, and they'll actually believe that the Bible is a book written so that we might know what to do to make God happy enough with us that we could get into heaven when we die. And I'm just here to tell you that that's not what the Bible is about. The Bible is not a book about what we must do to make God happy with us. The Bible is a book about what God has done for us so that we might be happy in Him. This whole book is telling us what God has done so that we might place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, knowing that His will is to save people only and exclusively through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the will of God. and We must align with Him. And if we do align with God in this matter of His will, He makes one other piece of His will critically apparent each one of us we can see it in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20 all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth and Jesus says go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age I cannot imagine a more appropriate day to declare the will of God for us to make disciples than on the Sunday that follows the week where a report is given to our nation that this area is the fastest growing area in the nation. God's will for us is to make disciples. To love God and love people and help others do the same. To help them find God through faith in Jesus Christ and fall in love with the Lord and love people so that other people could see Jesus Christ. We live in the fastest growing area in the nation because God wants each one of us to align our lives with His will. We are placed right here to live on mission for the glory of God. I want you to try something. Have you ever been on a mission trip? 
Some of you have been on a mission trip here. Some of you have heard about people going on a mission trip. Some of you have prayed for others that have gone on a mission trip. Some of you have paid for people to go on mission trips. We, we all have some idea of what a mission trip is like. But I want to describe to you the normal routine of a mission trip. Say you go work somewhere for 7 to 10 days, and you wake up in the morning on a mission trip. You know the first thing you do when you wake up on a mission trip? You start praying. Because you know that you can't accomplish what you're called to accomplish in that place without God's help. You open your Bible, you start reading your Bible saying, Lord, I need to hear from you. I need to make sure I'm reminded who you are. So I walk today by faith because I'm going to encounter the attacks of the enemy. I'm going to encounter opposition. I'm going to have opportunities to share Christ with people who never heard about you before. And I want to have your words coming out of my mouth. I want to get my heart right with you. So you spend some time getting right with the Lord, seeking him in the word and in prayer. And then you know what you do when you're with a group of people on mission trip? You gather with a few people in that group. Maybe it's a part of the group. Maybe it's the whole group. But you get together and you talk about, hey, this is what we got going on today. This is what the, the activities are going to be like. And let's start to orient everything we're going to do today through the lens of we're here for one reason and one reason only, to be a light in the dark, to share Jesus Christ, to make disciples. That's why we're here. That's why we've spent all this money. We've taken all this time. We've gone on this vacation. We're here because we want to make disciples. And you encourage each other to see everything where you go eat. No, we're not just going to eat there. Eating is just a vehicle to make disciples. We're there to see if somebody is there when we're eating that needs to hear about Christ. Everything we're doing is to share Jesus Christ. We're on mission. And then after the day is over, you come back together and you encourage each other in the mission. You talk about what God did and how he worked in your life. You talk about the things that discouraged you so that someone who was encouraged could come alongside you and help you refocus on the things of God. You spend that time together. You pray together again. You talk about what the Lord did. You may even sing some praise songs. And then you collapse into bed that night because you spent yourself for the glory of Jesus Christ every moment of that day and you wake up the next morning to do it again because you are on mission what if tomorrow morning we woke up and tomorrow morning was day one of our mission trip to this place where we will spend the rest of our lives making disciples what would happen if every day you saw your little family as your little mission team, as a part of this sub-team of the larger team of our church, and we're gathering in our homes saying, today we're going to be on mission. Today is our mission trip. Today is our opportunity to go into the place where God is bringing people from all over. And we get to live here where God's bringing people and just tell them about Jesus Christ. What would it be like if we lived on mission? I'll tell you what it would be like. We won't be able to hold the people that come into this place. We won't even be able to think in terms of reaching people through this facility. We'll have to think of how can we reach people through all kinds of other ways. How can we reach people 15 miles down the road by getting them to gather at another place? How can we reach people 10 miles up the road, getting them to gather there? We can't house them all here. Do you know that next year if we follow the same growth rate, we're going to have 5,000 people coming to Georgetown? In the last two years, you can't house all the people that have been coming into Georgetown and the church space that exists in this city. We've got to think outside the box. We've got to say, how can we leverage everything God's making us to be to reach people and make a difference for the kingdom on the earth? How can we put ourselves in a position to reach people for Jesus Christ? That is God's will for our lives. It's God's will for our church. And we need to say yes. The disciples were arrested one time for proclaiming the gospel in a city. 
And the leaders put them in jail, but God busted open the doors of that jail and they went out and started proclaiming the gospel again. And the leaders were like, get those guys back in here. They got them back in there and said, you guys need to shut up the stuff about Jesus Christ. And the disciples said to those leaders, we must obey God and not you. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and we must proclaim him. You know what the leaders wanted to do? They wanted to kill them. But one of the leaders said to the group of leaders who wanted to kill the disciples, he said, boys, if this is not of God, we don't have to worry about killing these guys. It's all going to phase out. But if this is of God, we better not get in God's way because we don't want to fight against God. We will not win that battle. We got a nation who has some leaders in it. They're trying to do some things. Telling us who can marry who and what marriage is. Telling us where people can go to the bathroom. I just want to tell you. They cannot win that battle. You can't fight against God and win. But make no mistake, as the church, we better understand what our battle really is. You know what our battle really is? Whether or not we decide to align our lives with the will of God. And God's will for us is that we make disciples. That we love God and we love people and we help others do the very same thing. We've got to decide to spend our lives for the will of God. There is no better way to live your life.